Knoxville Tower, runway 23 left at Alpha 8, taxi via Alpha Taxiway. No delay, wind 2904, runway 23 left at Alpha 8, clear for takeoff, traffic 3 mile final. Read back correct, tower for taxi, have a good flight. Welcome to From the Runway Up. I'm Becky. And I'm Caitlin. And we work in the Public Relations Department at McGee Tyson Airport in Knoxville, Tennessee. We understand that going behind the scenes in an airport these days isn't as easy as it used to be. So that's where this podcast comes in. Each episode, we'll give you a behind-the-scenes look of current events at our airport and in the aviation industry as a whole. So fasten your safety belts and join us on this aviation adventure. Hello from the Runway Up listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. Today we are going to talk about aviation history and more specifically the history of McGee Tyson Airport and downtown Island Airport because this month we are celebrating a milestone of McGee Tyson Airport's 84th anniversary. You're right, Caitlin. It is a long history of aviation in our community. If you keep in mind that aviation is really not that old, it's barely over 100 years old. And, it, and 80 years ago, we were doing things. We we're really on the forefront in our community of aviation. And it really started with people in their own garages who were, I would say, daredevils or <laughs> maybe even those test pilots of their time building their own aircraft or flying mechanisms to try to do those things. And they would bring them into downtown Knoxville to the exposition center and they would show them off and they would take little mini flights up around our community. And that just evolved into an airport community. Can you imagine? No, (laughs) I would be like, no, you're not. You're not building that in my house. (laughs) You want me to get in that thing and fly around the sky? No, thank you. (laughs) What about our kids? (laughs) And my has it changed since then because now aviation is one of the safest forms of travel. It's just amazing how things have evolved from a dirt field and the Wright brothers to now it's a full on global way to transport yourself your wonderful purchases from Amazon or other places. (laughs) And we also do lots of other things with aviation. And it is so wild to think that all of this progress has transpired over a little over a hundred years. And the Knoxville community really started getting interested and serious about aviation in the 1930s. Is that right, Becky? Yeah, actually, it started a little bit before that, where we had the first what we will call airport in our community, uh, Dickinson Island, which is now downtown Island, which is our general aviation airport. And it is an island, so it's limited in its runway capacity. And it actually was a grassy field. It wasn't a concrete location for people to land safely in regards to big commercial aircraft. So it started there, it evolved, aviation became more ingrained in in our community and as part of business practices as well. And it moved, the airport moved to Sutherland Avenue, which is a street here in Knox County that has a West High School on it. If you're from the area, you can see a marker that's located there that shows the exact location of where the airport that became McGee Tyson Airport was located. And then we were contacted by American Airlines about bringing weekly service to help be a part of this transcontinental mail process. And so what that did was connect Los Angeles all the way to New York and Washington, D.C. And we were one of the last pieces to be added to it. So we got a part of this mail route that brought a commercial service on American Airlines to that Sutherland Avenue location. 
Well, the plane started to change and in regards to they were more technical and they developed them more and they went from the big bouncy wheels that were on them that could handle the grassy terrain of landing on dirt fields to where they really needed a concrete or asphalt surface. So the community's forefathers got together from Knoxville, Maryville, Alcoa and Blount County. They all kind of came together and they looked at three different sites in our region to put this new airport on. They looked at a location that was out where the Museum of Appalachia, I would encourage you to go and take a look at that online if you have it before. It's a wonderful historical resource, but the airport was originally looked at there, but the forefathers felt like that that was a little too far out of city center. People would think it was too far from this general population and it would not be successful. They looked at a location on Chapman Highway, which is in the heart of downtown, and that was considered not to be a good option because there were so many people around and, and planes coming and going, probably introducing that to that area might not be had the best situation for them. And they finally decided on a piece of property that was actually farmland in Blount County, which is where we are located today. They spent $57,000 for 187 acres for today's airport location. Caitlin, can you believe, I mean, $57,000 won't even buy you a plot of land in some of the locations here in our community. Oh yeah. Not even one acre. No, that is so crazy. And so that was in 1935. And then two short years later, while we were under construction for a new airport terminal, American Airlines made its first scheduled stop here in this Blount County location. That was on July 29th of 1937. Well, and we continue to celebrate because that was under construction then. The airport wasn't completely done. And we had an official dedication of McGee Tyson Airport on October 15th, 1937. So if you're in the airport on October 15th, we consider that kind of our birthday. Mm -hmm. We like to do things and to celebrate the fact that we have been supported by our community and by the travelers of our area. And we like to share that with everyone on October the 15th. So that might be a date if you're looking to travel soon, you might just want to pop on in to McGee Tyson Airport for that party. Yeah, you might be surprised with a party hat or a sweet treat or or something like that. But so that location that they celebrated the grand opening, that terminal was actually located where TAC Air is now. And so our current location was under construction in the 70s. Right, right. And so anyone who is interested in what that looked like, you may want to check out our website from the runwayup.com because we can put some support material to help kind of give you reference to some of these locations that we're talking about to put it in perspective while you're listening. But it, it's really something that has evolved over time and has led to the situation we find ourselves in. I think we would be remiss if we didn't take a few minutes to also talk about who the airport's named after and why it got its name. So we are named after Lieutenant Charles McGee Tyson. He is a naval aviator who was killed in action during World War I. And his family, who were prominent people in our community at the time, a general and his wife, who was also a part of the fashion industry in New York. So very wealthy, very well known and very involved in our community. They actually donated a parcel of land in downtown Knoxville on the University of Tennessee's campus called Tyson Park to the city in exchange for the fact that their airport be named in memory of their son. And so that's how we became McGee Tyson Airport. And a lot of people wonder why we're not Knoxville Airport, like Dallas, Fort Worth International Airport, or some other way. We actually are named after someone from the history of our community and named in his performance in memorial to him. 
so much history around our airport, around aviation, and it's just something that we always need to remember and to celebrate. And that's what we hope we're doing with this podcast. And so today we are going to get to chat with Bob Davis, who is someone who has been researching our airport and aviation in our region for decades. And he is a wonderful person and a wealth of resource to learn about how it's changed, how it's evolved, and how things are going forward from a historical perspective. Mr. Davis, if you will start just by introducing yourself to our listeners. Well, I'm Bob Davis. I'm a native of Knoxville, Tennessee. And as a kid flying a kite out of Holston Hills, I saw yellow airplanes doing maneuvers over the golf course (laughs) before I was even too young to fly. But I started learning from Evelyn Bryant Johnson in Morristown. Then went to University of Tennessee in the College of Engineering and have been doing engineering for 2008. And like the is good for this country, the FAA allows you can be a pilot and do other things in life, opposed to the earliest uh, aviators who had to be virtually nothing but pilots because it was pretty intensive to know all the details there. So I've flown throughout the period since 1960s on an aircraft, and it's based at Downtown Island, been flying out of there since 1960, had the plane there since around 1975, and now I'm a Federal Aviation Authority designated pilot examiner for both gliders and a single-engine aircraft, and every now and then, once every couple of months, I get over to Tyson to do a check with the applicants coming from Cirrus Aircraft, which is a nice thing to have in this part of the country. Okay, so I worked at Lockheed, Georgia, and Marietta and learned the basics of uh, flying with gliders. And so I got interested when I retired and got back here, how early aviators, who they were, and how their lives went. And unfortunately, a lot of them ended up getting killed in airplane accidents, which you don't see that high percentage now. And there was a group of pilots called the Early Birds and pilots that soloed before 1916. And oh, they barely knew the basics and the planes were very fragile. And so that interested me in seeing how things were done around here. And I'd already studied some other uh, transportation history of both steamboats and railroads. And so it just fit in very nice since I was in aviation to find out more and learn the major events that happened and some of the people that were involved in it, mostly highlighting on the local people. Uh, Mr. Davis, you mentioned that you actually learned to fly from Miss Johnson. She had a really long historical involvement in our area. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Well, the real source would be the Tennessee Museum of Aviation and now the Hall of Fame, the Tennessee Aviation Hall of Fame. That's what I was trying to think of. But she uh, grew up in Kentucky and came here and she actually uh, learned to fly at downtown Island Airport. I think when you had to take a boat across the slough there to get from uh, the mainland onto the island where the runway was. And uh, she had these little simple ads in the newspaper that said, learn to fly just really small no pictures no nothing just the words and that created her business and she was uh, very active up there at Morristown being the uh, 
queen of the airspace up there because she enforced all of us flying up there. You had to call every leg of the pattern. So you have explained to us that why you got interested in doing aviation research, but specifically to McGee Tyson Airport, when did you start doing all of this? When did you start pulling together all of the historical data? Well, really the push was when Cheryl Henderson at the East Tennessee History Center asked me to collect some information because she knew I'd been in the library all the time on other things. And I looked more into the details other than what I remember in the 60s when the, I guess it was the Air Force then actually was flying the KC-97 cargo planes out of here. And of course, every now and then we'd hear a sonic boom and see the jet because the fighters were over there uh, defending the essential national areas of Alcoa making aluminum and Oak Ridge doing the uh, nuclear efforts. Well, and so for our listeners, can you give us a brief overview of McGee Tyson Airport's history? What I think is so interesting is that we were, our grand opening was in October of 1937. And whenever you look at these other airports that we are surrounded with, they aren't as old as us. It took them a few decades to have airports. And so Knoxville was really at the forefront of aviation, especially with McGee Tyson Airport. Well, in the 30s, a few years before that, the commissioner of the post office wanted to have air routes because everybody wanted to get airmail to California. Remember, Gold Rush, California was really a place to communicate with. And so there were four routes charted out from on high from Washington to get from the New England areas to California, and we were the Southern airmail route. And being the nice Tennessee Valley with some fields to land in, the route ended up going from Washington to Roanoke, Virginia, the Tri-Cities, Knoxville, Nashville, Memphis, uh, Little Rock, and Dallas. So the ingenuity and interest of the local people in purchasing the land probably ahead of some of these other airports got our airport open a little sooner than Nashville's and Tri-Cities. And so we became the focal spot for here for both transportation of not just airmail, but people and also flight training done by Elmer Wood. During the 75th anniversary of the airport, we actually got to talk to Mr. Wood's family and they donated some pieces to the Historical Society from his experiences with aviation. So that was a good relationship and their family has been actively involved with the airport for generations now. So that's really great. So Mr. Davis, can you tell us a little bit of a timeline in regards to the evolution of things? I know that McGee Tyson started as really a place to train pilots more than anything, and then it evolved into a commercial airport. How has it changed over the years? Well, especially because of the range of a certain bomber the Russians had, which could come over the North Pole and get to industrial plants in Detroit and other northern cities. Big push by Alcoa was to come this far south, and voila, TVA already had the dams there for the huge amounts of electricity they needed. 
And also Oak Ridge ended up being one of the two, you might say, genius spots of the country. Well, maybe three. There was uh, Argonne and one in California and Oak Ridge where people were really trying to push the fronts of keeping our uh, lead in in development of of what we need to defend freedom and and, uh, our way of life. Well, I could go on and, and say that originally Walter Self worked with a Stinson trimotor, a little high wing, to get the first airmail out of here because uh, what runs a city is usually commerce, whether it's steamboats bringing uh, goods up from New Orleans <laughs> before even railroads or whether it's getting information faster and faster to the rest of the consuming world of whatever you were making. And, of course, we have White Lily Flower that had a very – big influence nationally from here so knoxville was a focal point for businesses and so to get the airmail going faster faster than the railroads because railroads were already here they started going these flights to chattanooga and other places where they could then jump on and get to all the big cities well uh, when the postmaster decided that he wanted this southern route there had already been mail coming on a pretty regular basis by Lockheed Orion single engine airplanes through downtown Island airport and American airlines first set up their operation there in about 1934. So they were already well in tune with the area. So it made them a very quick change just a few miles away to the much bigger runways. And then the other airlines came along And the Boeing 247 came up, which Pennsylvania Central Airlines ran. And it was a real sleek looking airplane. And then American Airlines got the DC-2s and the DC-3s by Douglas Aviation. Now, one little back step about downtown Island. Americans started out with a three-engine low-wing Stinson airplane because it would go uh, into shorter fields. But these didn't have very big ranges, so they had intermediate landing points like Morristown and Athens if people had problems in getting from the key airports that these routes were going on. But then as the planes got bigger and came out of McGee-Tyson, their ranges were longer. And even then, occasionally it'd be a foggy morning, the planes would just have to bypass Knoxville and go to the next stop, and then you'd end up taking the train back if you wanted to get to Knoxville that day or take the flight the next day. Well, you have done intensive research on all of this, and I don't know, what stands out to you? What's your favorite story that you've stumbled upon when you've done uh, some of this research? Well, one of the things that sticks in my mind was about the old McGee Tyson there on Kingston Pike, where West High and the Army Guard are now, is... In those days, the runways were not paved. They were grass, which soon got beat down to be just dirt, and that became dusty. And so George Dempster and other city officials decided, well, we'll put some oil on there to keep down on the dust. And, of course, these uh, runways were sort of sloped so the water would run off quickly. It wouldn't pool in them. And so it was called a greased log when uh, it started raining and people tried to land because it wasn't level and the pilots had to stay on the runway and it would lead you off the runway just something horrible 
That's interesting. Well, and you've, you've mentioned a bunch of previous aviators in Knoxville. Who are some more aviators that had a significant impact in the history of Miggy Tyson Airport? My focus had been a lot on how instrument flying got into today's McGee Tyson from when they were just landing by flying around the clouds and the DC-3s wouldn't go high enough to go over or even use oxygen. But I think there were three generals, three people who became generals that local that were pretty important. One would be uh, Hodges Briscoe because he was claimed to have encouraged, made sure that the current site was the one. And, you know, in our research, we turned up names like Ferris Thomas and Mm -hmm. with Miss Bryan you talked about and and people who have a great legacy. And so for the people who are really interested in these individuals, there's going to be some information on our website at fromtherunwayup.com that you can go and, and take a look at the history of these people who have made an impact on our local aviation And they continue to do that because aviation continues to grow because what they started in a backyard somewhere or on a cornfield somewhere is now, you know, really transitioned into a wonderful aviation campus here at McGee Tyson Airport. And so I I just think that it's important to remember that what we're talking about was actually the start of aviation. So Mr. Davis, can you kind of talk about that timeline to put it in perspective for us is, you know, the Wright brothers were in the early 1900s. It was definitely before 1910. I just don't know specifically the year. And then we're here talking about having a major airport in 1930. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, you know, uh, Aviation means going in the air, and and there were people launching hot air balloons, uh, not being propane driven like the current ones, back in downtown Gay Street and out of uh, Chihuahua Park and everything. And then the exciting thing to do was they would be carrying a parachute. So once just going somewhere and going out of sight was not very important, they would go straight up, jump out in the parachute and come down if it worked right. Then people go chase where the balloon was because it would go up even more when you got rid of that weight. So that happened before 1900 even, so 1890s and and all. So uh, the gliding before the the Wright brothers, actually before they got the powered plane going, they worked with a local person. He was there at some of their glider fights. His name was Edwin Huffaker. Again, check the Tennessee Museum of Aviation, the National Tennessee Hall of Fame for that and find more out about him. The actual moving into airplanes with the Appalachian Exposition of 1910 was pretty much a national thing. And so the Wright brothers, their exhibition team, put a biplane, their Model B, into a freight car and shipped it to Knoxville. And it was assembled and flown out in Burlington at Cal Johnson's racetrack, which is now uh, paved in concrete and called Speedway Circle. <laughs> but they took off in the infield. They didn't do the outside. And then that had everybody's flares. I believe there was something in 1911, but actually in, before the next exposition, there was the Curtis team, which was competing with the Wright brothers. Glenn Curtis sent two people here And they did a few little exhibitions there. And then in order to take a passenger up, which the local newspaper promoted, who everybody voted to see who would get this, 
they went over to what was then called Vance's Island, which is now Boyd Island, which is now the biggest island at the mouth of the Holston River. And so all the crowd went and hung off the bridge there <laughs> and saw that go on. So World War I came along and some other enterprising person bought several freight car loads of Curtis Jennies, which were surplus from World War One, And so a lot of people in this area bought them cheap and could learn to fly <laughs> for themselves if they were lucky or get somebody to give them a few cues that had been in the military. The uh, larger planes used in the war were used by David Chapman to land in Sequoia Hills in the grassy area down there. And they went up and took pictures of the Smokies, trying to promote the Smokies, which, of course, I think was opened in 1933 or so. So uh, all sorts of little events happened like that. There'd be air tours where a Pitcairn Gyro came in, which is basically a helicopter without the rotors being powered. But it allowed you to land at a much shorter distance than a rigid wing airplane and take off in a little shorter distance. They're interesting little uh, categories of aircraft and uh, so people got to these things and public got you know the taste of aviation and people first when they got in those passenger planes they were tail draggers so you got in towards the rear and you had to usually walk uphill to get to your seat <laughs> the floor was not level in the planes until the after world war ii when the dc-4s and the dc-6s came in which were both airplanes with four engines and tricycle gear so the plethora of, of little airports that got started just like in railroads there a lot of little tiny railroads ended up making the main lines like the southern and the l n there were airports that clinton guy jones did that richard m cox did the sky ranch Virtually every airport, Jacksboro had uh, Burt Loop was there. And one little tip for history people is look to see, <laughs> you know, you can drive across these bridges in, in Knoxville and see the name of somebody there. They must have been somebody to have their name on that bridge. Well, find out whose name is associated with the airport. <laughs> they must have been historically significant. And I cannot think right now off the top of my head, the uh, Jacksboro Airport. But they have an older person named for that who was high up in the military who came from that area. So that's a, a, another little cue. Bob Campbell was pretty well known at downtown Island Airport. And then, of course, it was paved not until the 60s because see, most of these were grass airports. And also, all of the flying ended up had to be controlled. So all these grass strips and everything right after December 7th, 1941, were all shut down. And the only general aviation flying that was done came out of McGee-Tyson until after that was let up. Now, during the war, there was a group of cadets and instructors out of, at UT and somewhere in Maryville. Now, they came over downtown Island and flew out of there. The locals got real upset because they were afraid the planes were going to crash into their homes. And there's a pretty nice homes in downtown Island. So they made an agreement that the, the military said, well, we won't solo anybody out of here. We'll just train them. <laughs> so I think they did their solo flight somewhere else. But they had a ton of planes stacked up over there in a hangar. They'd stack them up like cordwood. They'd put the prop down on the ground and the tail would stick up in the air. And you get a whole bunch of them in a hangar. 
But of course, that was before the wooden hanger that was over there that remote area medical used, because that was a surplus one that was typical of what was done because you didn't want to have any metal. It was all going for tanks and airplanes. And so it was all made of wood. That's a historic landmark we've sort of lost. We've got a lot of pictures of it and aviation moves on. That's one thing is there's not many historical places around that you can see. We've got pictures of what the first tower at McGee Tyson was, but obviously that space is needed for for ramps and everything. So uh, park airplanes and have hangars. Time moves on, so you've got to go back to the old newspapers, people's stories, and hopefully we can remember the, the pieces that got put together. And I think it's also interesting that, you know, the first flying was done around the clouds. And then they got the different types of instrument approaches very slowly into McGee-Tyson, which allowed it to be more and more reliable. And of course, nowadays, the corporate people have been able to do Category 2 and Category 3 landings where they don't even see the ground. All they have to do is worry about taxiing off the runway to the ramp. The plane does the whole thing on itself. I kid them. I say, you guys don't really do much. You put the autopilot on when you get to 10,000 feet and you fly across the Atlantic, and land in Ireland or somewhere, and you've only got five minutes on the controls the rest of the thing. It's all automated with these flight management systems and everything. So I get a harumph out of that. From I bet you do. <laughs> well, not really. I've got to give a plug to a friend of mine who's lived here for many years. He grew up in Colorado. He flew at Piedmont Aviation. and their old turboprops that used to come in, the Japanese airplane. Japanese were really ahead in aviation then. They finally got it in cars later, but that they just had a blip doing that. He flew the exact same plane that Scully did that landed in the uh, river. And I claim that my friend is much better than Scully, although all three of us are glider instructors. So we know what to do when the engines quit. My friend Steve Stevenson managed to miss the geese every time he took out of Tullus there at uh, Washington, (laughs) D.C., and landed that very same plane on the flight to Charlotte that Scully didn't end up making. So not not to downplay Scully, don't get me wrong. (laughs) I just think it's a funny way of promoting that. And also, Steve, I've given him an arrow toe in his glider out of downtown Ireland, and he set an, several national records. I think one is still standing now because people every time flying up the mountain in the middle of the valley here, the Clinch Mountain, and not you know between the Cumberlands and the Appalachians, all the way up into Virginia and back, and doing some other approved things that they count distances for. So he's a very accomplished pilot, and we actually both have a share right now in a motor glider. So that's a a different category of aircraft other than some of these parachute-driven airplanes called powered parachute. And, of course, you've got trikes that people fly in now. There's a lot of small things that uh, people can get interested in general aviation. Just be sure you get good flight instruction. Well, and that's what I think is interesting is that Knowing how to fly different types of aircraft, gliders, aircraft powered by propeller, or if they're going with the jet engines, they all kind of work together. Because you mentioned in your story about your friend who knows how to fly like Sully Sullenberger. The fact is, 
his gliding experience helps with his other piloting experiences. So those crossovers are real important. When someone's learning to fly, do they typically do that? Try to learn how to do that on multiple aviation aircraft? No, usually stick with a specific category, but uh, most all of the syllabuses call for emergency training in situations like you lose your engine and you're 10,000 feet. General aviation, not quite that high, but they pick a field to go into rather than, than something that's not as good. So at least they can maybe they might knock the landing gear off, but, you know, it's not a catastrophic thing. So there's different tasks that are assigned into just and basically fly the airplane. That's why we have a thing called aeronautical decision making. And to me, I think the big difference in aeronautical decision making than what we do when we're driving down the interstate is, or when we're sitting here looking at our computers, there's no time limit to solve a problem. You know, like who do I get to roof my house, et cetera. I can take months figuring that out. But when the engine starts running rough, or the weather looks bad, you've got to decide I'm going to my alternate or what I'm going to do and do I have enough fuel to do it. So you have a short time to make a decision. So you have to know the systems of your airplane a lot better than you do in your automobile. And back when I learned to drive, you could change the spark plugs. Hardly anybody does that anymore. But, you know, there was a lot of, you could change your oils, a lot of things you could do as individuals. And you can still do certain limited things yourself on your airplane. And that's spelled out by the FAA because they want everybody to be doing things reliable. And you have to say how you did it when you put it in the logbook. But the whole idea is that you're just got to think a little bit quicker than you do driving the interstate or looking at a computer. That's a great point. So, Mr. Davis, you have mentioned a ton of previous aviators, a lot of milestones in history that I've been making notes. I want to dig a little deeper into some of these topics that you've discussed, too. So if our listeners are interested in doing their own research and learning more about aviation history, where do you recommend they start or where do they turn to? Well, if you can catch the people that are still around, ask them. (laughs) You can go to the, actually, it's all online now. You can scan the Knoxville newspapers. If you remember the date of an event that happened, you may have to look at several days after. If you don't have the date exactly, you may have to look at a whole month of newspapers, but they're either on microfilm at various libraries or you get them online and just see what is there. It's sort of like a scavenger hunt. You're looking for something and there's a ton of ads in the newspapers. There's a ton of other things going on. And of course, that's the nostalgia of things. And then the newspapers were really good. And that's horrible that we don't have newspapers doing as good a reporting now because everybody's getting their news. Otherwise, for history of aviation, uh, go to aviation museums. The one that our buddy over there at Sevierville has, Neil Melton, has got a nice history of Tennessee aviation in there with models and everything. So I would suggest you pay the the fee to go in there and see it and then actually see some of the aircraft engines that have been around and some of the aircraft that he has. He is mainly on military aircraft, but that's what makes things happen faster is the need in the military more than just general needs. So I'd say go to a museum send some of my applicants for their private pilot to plan a cross-country trip to Dayton, Ohio. But all I say is, 
go plan a trip to visit the U.S. Air Force Museum at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. There were a lot of air shows, and there were some pretty fancy air shows. You know, they had the stealth fighter come, I think, the last one, and it was done under the Dogwood Arts Festival, and I think they budgeted some money, and of course they get Blue Angels or the the Air Force Thunderbirds there or whatever, and that really helps people get introduced to aviation. That's the only way you're going to really appeal to people is they get to actually see it. All right, Mr. Davis, thank you so much for being with us today and talking to us about your research and the evolution of the history of McGee Tyson Airport and including downtown Island Airport, which is also an airport in our system here in our East Tennessee region. And that will also be on our website. So you can link off to DKX and learn more about that as well. We appreciate your time and appreciate all the information that you helped today. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. this past 30 minutes or so has given you a greater appreciation of aviation history and the history right here in Knoxville and at McGee Tyson Airport in downtown Island. And we hope that you will visit our website at fromtherunwayup.com to kind of get supplemental materials so you can better understand because I know it's hard to kind of picture some of these places and there were a lot of names thrown out there. And if you want to learn more, I encourage you to visit that website, but also to visit the East Tennessee Historical Society. Or if you want to learn more about the airport in your city or area, every area has a community resource center like the Historical Society where you can do research on the airport and its founding members. And, and there's lots of good stories that we could share about McGee, Tyson, and Downtown Island that we've just scratched the surface on. So they are there for you to learn more. And if you come across any interesting stories about the history of McGee, Tyson Airport, please reach out and share them. We always love hearing about the people and the events that have brought us to where we are today. So thank you so much for tuning in to this podcast episode, and we hope that you will join us again next time.